Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, and today, Dr. Dante is on vacation. Well, we'll give him a pass because we have an excellent guest on our show, Dr. Saj Survey, a, another osteopathic physician and a professor of osteopathic medicine at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, also a good friend and mentor of mine in the performing arts medicine. Dr. Saj, so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming. Great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Well, and we have talked so much about osteopathic medicine. We've talked about that osteopathic physicians are actually physicians, but one thing we've never covered in our show is where do osteopathic physicians get their training and what does it take to become an osteopathic physician? Now, we brought you to Dr. Saj because of your experience as a faculty member and through the entire spectrum of training to become an osteopathic physician. So what does that look like to start out? Sure, just a little bit more background. So I have been teaching uh, osteopathic manipulative treatment for about 10 years now in two different states. So, and in both cases, I taught first year medical osteopathic medical students, mm -hmm. first for five years at the Rowan University School of Osteopathic Medicine and then for the past five years now at uh, UNT Health Science Center, TCOM. Um, and so I've taught first year medical students through that time. I've also been uh, on the faculty for second year medical students. Mm -hmm. I've been a preceptor for third year medical students, taken fourth year medical students on rotation, and I've been a preceptor for uh, an NMM, OMM uh, residency, and for a plus one NMM uh, what we would quote unquote fellowship, uh, as well as now a performing arts medicine fellowship, which is uh, heavily focused on osteopathic manipulation. So, yes, I've been involved in osteopathic education spectrum. through the entire spectrum from that time. And, and your question is a really interesting one uh, because when we look at first year medical students mm -hmm. when they first arrive, you know, we, we talk about them as, uh, you know, glorified college students, right? They're, because that's what they are. Because that's right. what they are. Really. And they have that college uh, mentality of, you know, not always, but a lot of black and white thinking, you know, multiple choice. Is it A or B or C or D? That's what they've been training <laughs> to do for the last four or five years to take all of those multiple choice tests. Absolutely. And when you look at the first year curriculum, a lot of... Uh, the first-year curriculum is still really rooted in the sciences, biochemistry, mm -hmm. cell science, you know, even anatomy, physiology, very uh, sort of science-heavy. All the hard sciences. Hard science-heavy, I think that's fair. Uh, and then you tack on this additional piece of osteopathic uh, manipulative medicine, or OMM. You know, it's a, very, it's a really challenging uh, course for many incoming students because it's a completely different way of thinking and it's the first time that they're having to think clinically you know right so it's, it's a clinical skill uh, as opposed to more of a hard science answer the question kind of thinking so they're really putting on their investigative hat mm -hmm. they're becoming Sherlock Holmes of the medical world <laughs> and they've never had to do that before Everything no. has come from the textbook and now they're looking at live patients and going what in the world am I seeing here? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our, our challenge for the first year students is just to get them out of that mode of thinking and into this mode of investigation, as you said, 
and also just understanding the nuance that there's nuance and there's gray area and that not one size fits all right uh, and especially in something like manipulation right. uh, where you know the height differential between our incoming first-year students might be you know six we have a student who's uh, I think six foot eight wow and we have another one to look up to yeah wow. <laughs> Oh gosh! Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. how it's going to run. It always does. It always <laughs> does. We've got dad jokes for miles, so that's this right. is going to be a fun uh, talk. Uh, but yeah, so six foot eight, and then you know we have another student who's uh, four foot ten, wow. and so almost you know you know just almost a two foot differential in heights, and and so trying to figure out how to do this physical skill when you have these different body types, different patient types, it's really a difficult challenge to overcome. Sure. Well, and, and thinking about these first-year students, maybe you could, you could uh, touch on what are we looking for in a first-year student? What kind of applicant, I guess, if you will, really fits the bill for an osteopathic medical school? Sure. Um, having sat on the admissions committee of both of those schools over the past 10 years, I think I can speak to that as well. Uh, I think you know, one of the, the big things we look for is, is you know, you have to be strong in the sciences. That's a given, right? Sure. Because medicine is so, such a science-driven uh, field, evidence-based field. So things like, you know, your performance on your MCATs and how you do on your uh, undergraduate science courses, your GPA, you know, those are obviously important things. And those are the kinds of factors that would play large into uh, who would be granted an interview at the right. medical school. Right. Okay. Uh, but in osteopathic medical school, I think the interview w weighs very heavily on how you're going to do and who we're going to accept. And in the interview is where we really want to understand more about you as an, as an applicant in terms of the soft skills, right? What mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. empathy do you have? Can you, do you have signs of resilience? You know, are you somebody who can bounce back from failure, uh, which, we need that. which is just so important in, in this day and age. You know, somebody who's going to be, you know, well organized, have good time management skills, who's going to, um, you know, come with, with a, a passion for medicine, you know, that we need to be able to gauge. And so those are the, the intangibles that don't necessarily show up uh, in an application. We want to understand all of that about you as an applicant to see if you're going to be a, a good fit. Um, for osteopathic medicine. Me personally, just as somebody who uh, is a, a teacher of osteopathic manipulative treatment, you know, I always like to ask if I'm on an interview and I have you know, open question time, I always like to ask about people's hobbies. You know, what do you do for fun? What kind of... Uh, you mean students are out having fun? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> we want yeah. you to be a well-rounded individual with interests and we don't want you to lose that when you come to medical school and a lot of times that gets lost in the shuffle you know because it's such a grind but you know keeping those hobbies is what's going to keep you grounded and keep mm -hmm. you sane as you go through this uh, this process but I'm curious about what hobbies you might have are you somebody who maybe plays a musical instrument or is involved in performing in some way just out of personal well, interest yes, that's personal uh, as the performing arts medicine person? But also, too, somebody who plays an instrument might have uh, good manual dexterity if they're a piano player or you know, some other instrumentalist that's using their hands in that way. Or are they somebody who has uh, an interest in... Uh, you know, shop, you know, like auto mechanic, like working on cars or doing something, you know, work with their hands. 
again working with their hands. And, yeah. and we've actually discussed that a little bit, how we as osteopathic physicians are really very much into the mechanics of the body as mm -hmm. well as the physiology. Yeah, and so people who have that extra skill set where they are good with their hands, used to using their hands, they, they enjoy working with their hands. To me, that's an applicant who is pr of particular interest because of their, um, that perhaps that they might have a, a, a leaning towards uh, osteopathic manipulative treatment. That's not to say that you have to have that skill to be acceptable. Sure. Just I find, I personally try to see, look for those types of applicants who um, have that that kind of skill set. So if you've turned a few wrenches, you might turn a few heads. I, I think that's fair. <laughs> we don't want them to wrench people's necks, but we do <laughs> want to. to but you will get noticed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so when they come into uh, the, court, the classroom for the first time, there's a lot of uh, sort of ground rules that need to get set. Mm -hmm. Very important as you're starting this journey towards uh, osteopathic manipulative treatment and, and practicing in this clinical way. Our, our school, and as far as I'm aware, almost every school in the nation uses the students as the learners, but also as the patients. You partner with one another, and that serves a dual purpose. Mm -hmm. One, because you need somebody to practice these you skills got, on. Uh, you've got to have a live body gotta have to a, work on. Yeah, you the, can't the, do this the with the a mannequin. It's not going to work. don't work. Stan is not a good stand. No. Uh, and so you need a, a person to practice with. Uh, but also, I think it plays a role in that you get to experience what it's like to be on the receiving end, to be a patient. And I think that's what part of what makes osteopathic medicine a little bit different is that students have that uh, opportunity to be a patient mm -hmm. like that and to be in a, in a vulnerable position where you have somebody else working with you and practicing on you. And a lot of times, you know, that students can come in with, um, you know, hang-ups about being touched or right. problems with personal space, being up close in somebody's personal space or having to communicate with somebody who you don't really know very well. Mm -hmm. And so I think being in the lab in that setting uh, creates that opportunity to be vulnerable, to work on your communication skills, to put, to put your hands on another person in a therapeutic way. Uh, but along with that, we have to set the ground rules on the front end right. to talk about right. what is good patient communication. What does this look like? What, what is, is appropriate touch? How do you put your hands on people? How do you communicate what you're trying to do and what your goals are? And how do you be in somebody's personal space in a way that is non-confrontational and is not going to make the situation worse? Respectful. Yeah. yeah no, and, and so students, you know, when, when they start, you know, it's amazing. It's an amazing transformation to see just in a few weeks. Every, the difference. Everyone is scared and terrified of what's happening. And within a couple of weeks, you know, those barriers start to come down a little bit. And yeah, uh, literally, we, <laughs> literally. We're, we're laughing here because when we talk about osteopathic somatic quote unquote dysfunctions, we're always talking about barriers. Right. So a little bit of an inside joke. <laughs> it's a very nuanced pun right there. Yeah. Uh, and so as those, you know, personal defenses and walls come down and people uh, start to learn how to be in close proximity with others and how to manage that, uh, it becomes just a really interesting learning experience. And our, and our job in those first few weeks is really to teach 
the basic skill of palpation, which is the foundation of all osteopathic manipulation. Right. If you cannot palpate, you cannot treat. Mm -hmm. And we, def we define palpation, if you had to give it a three-word definition, mm -hmm. is uh, touch with intent, right? Yes. Yes. And so it's the difference of touch is putting your hands on something with, you know, physical contact. Whereas palpation, you're making physical contact with a question in mind. You're asking a question that you're trying to get an answer to. So is the person, is their skin hot? Do they have a fever, right? Cold or is, clammy. Are they clammy? Do they have muscle tension? Is the bone broken or not? Right? You're asking All a question when you're touching. We call that palpation. Right. As so you're basically to communicating touch. with the tissues. Yes, you're, you're trying to get something back as opposed to just laying your hands on something for the, with no uh, intention whatsoever, which is just physical touch. And so we try to work on developing that sense of palpations and what do different tissues feel like? What does bone feel like? What does muscle feel like? What do tendons and ligaments feel like? What does um, you know, connective tissue feel like? Trying to just get a sense of what all these different textures are like, what these depths are like, how do you palpate to different depths, how to use different parts of your hand to palpate, the pads of your fingers versus the tips versus the sides of your fingers. These, these all give you very different palpatory experiences. So it's really about immersion and teaching these students how to use their hands in a way that they've probably not used they've them. They've never been encouraged. They didn't know they needed to use Ever them before. Ever. And what it is, what's normal? <laughs> what's normal feeling and what's abnormal and then how do you know something went from abnormal to normal when mm -hmm. you treated it? Absolutely and that can be very difficult for students to to grasp in the beginning and it just comes with time and patience and so uh, you know we try to be patient give them as much experience as we can in that in those early days palpate as much as they can and the other thing is to palpate on different people right mm -hmm. so palpate mm -hmm. tall people versus short people Athletic build versus non-athletic build, male versus female. You know, yeah, it's everyone just everyone feels different, and, and just trying to get a sense of the the variability of the human condition is is just a really difficult challenge. So sometimes when we're working in the osteopathic lab, the students will say something like, "Well, everyone here is normal. How is that going to help?" What is your response to that question? I think you have to know what normal is before you know what abnormal is. And so <laughs> right? the better you sense you have of what quote unquote normal is, the better sense, the more something that it doesn't fall within those parameters jumps out at you as something that needs your attention. And so you have to start somewhere. And I think that's, that's as good a place as any to start. I think it is a valid uh, point that you know, a lot of the students don't, you know, if, if you're working on uh, rib cage, for, for example, right. in a particular lab, okay, we're going to examine people's breathing and try to see if their breathing is uh, asymmetric. You know, they use more one side of their rib cage more than the other to breathe. Right. The vast majority of the people in, in the room are going to be relatively normal. Their breathing might be slightly asymmetric, but not grossly asymmetric. It's not somebody with pneumonia whose one side of their lung COPD is completely, yeah, is completely locked down from infection or, or right, who has obstructive lung disease where they're going to have a big uh, barrel chest and not be able to move much air. You're not going to see a lot of that in the lab. And so because of that, that yeah, or at least, yeah, you'd certainly hope not. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of the folks that you're going to see are going to be shades of normal. You know, it's going to be very subtle differences from one side to another. 
And that I think that does make it a little bit difficult to appreciate. You know, when we're saying one side is going to be really different from the other, and you get into lab and they're, they're barely different at all. Different. What do you mean by yeah, different? Yeah, well, they're almost the same. <laughs> well, yes, in this case, they're almost the same. But if they had a lung problem or a breathing problem, it would not be the same. So, you know, unfortunately, there's just in a class size of 240, there's just not, you can't bring in uh, 240 people with pneumonia. You wouldn't want them in the same room for the right. first part. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, you just can't round up that kind of population. Yeah, we're not, not going to be interviewing. Uh, do you <laughs> have pneumonia? Do you have pneumonia? If, if you don't you're have pneumonia, perfect. Come on in. Let's yeah, breathe right. on everybody now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it would be overwhelming to bring, you know, that many students into the hospital to go uh, yeah, palpate on, on sick people in the hospital. That's Excuse just me, not. sir, you need to have 200 <laughs> students palpate your lungs. Not going to happen. Your rib, not your lungs. And so we, you do what you can with the resources you have, right. but at the same time, I think there is value in palpating normal over and over again. Even though you may not see that you know, <laughs> in the moment, you have to kind of take our word for it a little bit. Trust me, this you will... Take our word for it until you get to the clinic. <laughs> when you get to the it. clinic, this is all going to make a lot more sense. And, and we do see that when the third years come and rotate with us on their uh, mandatory uh, month of osteopathic manipulative medicine. You know, the light bulbs go off. They say, wow, this is abnormal. That's what you were talking this about. This is what you were talking about all those years. That I couldn't so. <laughs> see for the last two years. And so it's, it's always a very interesting dynamic. Definitely interesting. And how do you tell that a student is progressing? So we do assessments uh, throughout their first two years. We have a, at TCOM at least, we've adopted a milestone type of rubric. Mm -hmm. The milestones try to help the students understand where they are on the spectrum of uh, proficiency uh, in osteopathic manipulative treatment. It's an ordinal scale, zero to five. Zero means a complete novice who's never done it before. Right? <laughs> and still doesn't know what they're doing. Doesn't know anything about anything. Yeah. And then a five would be somebody who's in practice doing osteopathic manipulation daily for years. Basically a master at osteopathic manipulation. So you're treatment. saying none of the students are ever going to be a five? Well, which? not throughout their time in medical school. Not right? as a student. Not as a yeah. student. Not I, as yeah, a student. we don't expect anyone to be a five. Yeah. Um, why go to medical school? <laughs> yeah, if you could come in as a five, you don't need medical school. You're already there. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and, so, and so we say, and then we have uh, touchstones in between there. So a one would be a novice, somebody who kind of gets the rules, but still doesn't really understand exactly doesn't what's really going on. Hasn't put everything together. Yeah. Hasn't put it all together. You understand the, the terms. You have the basics down, but you, you're not quite correct, you know, like a novice. And then uh, level two is what we would call minimum competency. So you, you understand the rules, you understand how to apply the rules. may not look the prettiest just yet, and if you did that on a patient, it would be marginally effective. It would be you wouldn't awful. harm them, but you also may not help them very much right. either. Right. right. So this is definitely not somebody you would want working on your mother, for example. <laughs> not on their, on their own. <laughs> not on their own, right. A three would be somebody who is competent, you know, they know what they're doing, they can apply the rules in the right situation, may not be able to extrapolate that, that out to a different situation, but in this context, in this situation, you can apply the rules correctly and do it, and do it correctly. It looks correct when you do it. Okay. And then a four would be somebody who can take those skills and is very fluid with the skills, can practice them, perform them at ease with, with not a whole lot of thought 
you know, and can adapt that, you know, to different patients of different sizes without too much difficulty. And then a five would be somebody who is truly a master at their skill, They're master at their craft. Floating on air, they are the Yoda <laughs> of OMT. And so we would expect a medical student in their first year to reach kind of a level two, perhaps. And then when they reach their second year, we want them to move from a two up to a three. If they come and spend a year, a month with us on rotation, they should be coming in at around a three and maybe they move up to a four on some skills, maybe not all skills. And then eventually if they come and do a residency and specialize in, the, in this uh, field, we would expect them to move up to a four and maybe even a five on some skills over the course of a residency. And so that's the continuum of uh, proficiency that we try to instill within osteopathic medical students. Here's a fun fact. In a 2013 article published in Scientific Reports, scientists were able to control fabrics to create tinier and tinier wrinkles in the fabric and asked participants to palpate the fabric with their fingers, trying to, to gauge the limits of how, far, how small a wrinkle could be and still be felt by the human finger. By the time the study was concluded, they found that the lowest amplitude of a wrinkle able to be felt was approximately 10 nanometers, demonstrating that human tactile discrimination can extend to the nanoscale. All right, so Dr. Saz, we've talked about the numbers and it's really easy to get lost in the details, but what do these numbers actually mean from a practical standpoint? Sure, so I think I can divide this, and this is not based on anything other than my own uh, observations over time, having you know, been a part of the training of a couple thousand osteopathic medical students and physicians. It's a small number. <laughs> here and, there. and of course, my own personal journey. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at those numbers, you know, two, uh, you're a two, a three, a four, a five, I think we can break it down into kind of stages of stages of progression mm -hmm. that an osteopathic physician goes through as they continue to practice OMT uh, throughout their career. And this is backed by uh, the science on psychomotor skill acquisition. Mm -hmm. They show mm -hmm. that as you work on developing psychomotor skills, your proficiency is not it's not a linear thing you know you you it's you get bumps in the road you go you have periods of rapid growth then and you then, get you, then you plateau for a while uh, and so I think if you kind of look at the journey uh, writ large you can divide it into four sort of stages okay that the osteopathic physician travels through the four stages of osteopathy there you go that's <laughs> fair quote unquote mm -hmm. and so uh, the first stage of, uh, of the journey, I call that the technician stage. So these are really the medical students that yeah. and uh, early residents. Mm -hmm. and, I think, and I think these stages are stages that are more, I would say, dependent on touches more than time, mm -hmm. right? So somebody who's very involved and is doing a lot of repetitions could reach this stage very quickly 
somebody who does a little bit of manipulation, you know, spread out over a longer time will take longer. But somebody could re reasonably reach this stage by their third year of medical school. If they're really diligent about participating in class activities, they practice outside of lab, they treat their family and friends, I think you could reasonably reach the technician stage by third year of medical school. That's a that's fair enough. Ambitious. Yes. But could be done. But we we see that all the time with the students who are very dedicated and can uh, really working hard. Oh, in any given class, there's always going to be those superstar students who reach right. this stage very you know quickly. And so the technician stage is the first stage. I would call it the first stage. There's there's pre-technician. Basically, you don't know what you're doing. The, the technician right. stage is the first stage where you feel like you've got it. The technician is the person who knows the rules, knows how to apply them, and can apply them with competence and with confidence, right? So you know how the different models work, high velocity, muscle energy, the models that you learn, counter strain, you know, these are different models that we teach medical students. You've got the rules down, you know how to apply them, patient comes in, you're like, I've got back pain, I've got this. I'm gonna palpate here, I'm gonna find that problem, I'm gonna follow HVLA, the rules, yeah. I'm gonna f do the HVLA, and you know, I know what I'm doing. And so that technician stage is just an awesome stage to be in. It's, it's also peak confidence and peak arrogance <laughs> is the technician stage. Yeah, we've had that discussion. Oh, yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Because you don't yet. know what you don't know. And you know the rules and you know how to follow the rules, so you're like, I know what I'm doing. You've, that's the first stage where you're like, I know what I'm doing. Uh, anyone can come in. I can diagnose stuff and I can treat stuff. And patient, people are going to feel better. And you know you feel great about right. yourself and yeah. your skill set. So that first stage is that technician stage, and that's just a, a wonderful stage to be in. I wish I could go back to those days. That's kind where, of the honeymoon stage. Yeah, it's, you're like this is awesome. I, I love can, it. I can treat people, and they feel better, and it's wonderful, and OMM is wonderful, and everything is is hunky dory. And some people hit that technician stage and just never leave it. They just that's, that becomes their life. They just live in the technician okay. stage, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. that. You're going to help a, t a ton of people. Yeah. You have technical skill, and it's, it's, you know, you're proficient at it, and that's great. you got skills. Yeah, you know <laughs> what you're doing. And so that's, that's great. And I think, like I said, most, most people will move forward out of this stage at some point, um, but some people never do it. And, and uh, these stages are fluid. Some people move back and forth between different stages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but in, this, in the life of an of a osteopathic physician who's doing manipulation on a regular basis, um, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens. So if you imagine I see 10 patients, right? right. I've got my technician skills, and I'm really good at, at following the rules and treating them, right? And I go and I treat, and maybe I help eight of them, you know, and they feel better. That's great. Which is great. I mean, that's wonderful. You've helped eight people. That's great. That's better than most medications in some way. In some Absolutely. Way. And so now those two people, they come back and see you again because you haven't helped them yet and you're still, still work in progress. Right. In the meantime, more patients show up. You treat some of those. But now these, this new batch that you've helped, you only help, you know, uh, let's say 80% of those. So now you have three people that are coming back to see you because you haven't quite helped them, right? You haven't quite helped them all the way, but you're seeing people, you're helping them. 
And so what ends up happening over time is you reach a stage where more and more of your time is being spent treating these folks who you haven't been able to help, right? They end up taking a larger and larger percentage of the people that you're seeing. And so as a result of that, you end up with this confidence crisis, right? You're kind of wondering, what is going on that my patients aren't all mm -hmm. getting better? Yeah, all of a sudden now you have this whole room full of people in your waiting room who you haven't been able to help fully. And they're still coming back. And they're still coming back. <laughs> and you're working on them and you're still trying to figure it out and I haven't quite figured it out. They're getting a little better, but not quite. And so what ends up happening is you move into the next phase. I call this the explorer phase. Mm -hmm. So you move from a technician to an explorer. So you're looking for different options. Mm -hmm other than what you've already And so you realize the tool set I have now is not quite adequate to deal with the people that I'm seeing. Wait, there yet. Not, so there's got to be something else that I'm missing. I'm missing something. So you start taking courses, you go to conferences, you start asking other people, you might dabble with some other treatment models that you haven't previously uh, worked with, mm -hmm. you know, and you're just exploring. You're just trying to figure out what do I need to know? What am I missing? You know? You're all going Cortez on us. <laughs> <laughs> and so, again, I know f very, very talented folks who never who enter the explorer phase and this never leave. They're just a student, for, student of life. They, student of the they show up at every world. new course for every new thing and they just want to learn what's out there and just keep going and learning and, and, and trying to find new models and new ways to be innovative and, and incorporate it. And that's wonderful. And they're, like I said, extremely talented people. In terms of the lifespan, a lot of times third year and fourth year is where a lot of the medical students fall off this cliff because right. you start seeing actual patients with actual problems and you start realizing your wonderful skill sets aren't as awesome as you thought they were. <laughs> You'd hoped for sure. Yeah. And so a lot of times they fall into that explorer phase in medical school. More often, I would say this is something that happens during residency, mm -hmm. or maybe even the early early stages of your first practice, you know, when you have your own patients that you're managing by yourself. Right. And so people just kind of freak out and, and realize, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing, you know, I can't help <laughs> I anybody. anymore. Yeah, I don't even know. And so again, you explore, you go out there, you take all these courses, you learn bring in these new perspectives, you try these experiments in your, in your practice, like maybe I'll try this model now. Mm -hmm. but what ends up happening is each new model that you learn, when you go to apply to that group of people who you weren't able to help, you know, you learn that piece and a couple of people now all of a sudden you're able to help, right? So you're filtering down a yeah. little bit. And so you're picking away at that, that crowd now. You're saying, oh, now I can help these folks because I learned that piece. Mm -hmm. And then you learn some other tool and then you apply it and a few other folks you realize, oh, now I'm able to help those folks. And they come off your plate. And so you, you start to slowly build your confidence back again because you're starting to help people that you weren't able to help and you're getting more confident in your skills over okay. time. Okay. So you, you've begun a winnowing process of mm -hmm. the, the patients that you couldn't help in the past. You're developing your skills. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? And so, again, some people just stay in that phase. But, if, but I would say the majority don't. The majority move into the third stage. And this stage I call the automaton stage. Automaton means 
that you go into automatic mode. <laughs> you, you're so good mm -hmm. that you've got all of these tools, you just automatically know which one is used at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so with this phase, what ends up happening is, you know, you have all these disparate systems that you've learned. I've taken that course, and I've taken that course, and this other course, and this other person I worked with who showed me something. So you have all these various uh, different schools of thought that you've uh, taken in over time. And so what ends up happening, right, this is the synthesis. You've mm -hmm. taken all the things that you've learned and you've sort of mashed it together into a cohesive system of practice that you've got down and this is how I practice, right? You get this strong sense of identity like this is how I do OMM and you know I've figured out this system and so this is when a lot of the books get written, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is when, and this is when the students come in to see you work and they go, what did he just do? Yeah, what just happened? What's How, that technique? And <laughs> so this is a really, again, an, an amazing stage to be at because you just put your hands on people and you just know what you need to do. And that's why I call it the automaton stage because a lot of times you've got it and it's not even in your conscious thought anymore. You just put your hand and you just sort of know what... Riding you, the bike. You just know what you need to do. Your hands just sort of do their own thing. Uh, and so you're almost like an observer to your own treatment because you're like, wow, I did that. That was pretty cool. That's amazing. And so when we talk about the, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour rule, right? You know, it takes 10,000 hours to master something, which is suspect, but you know, that's out there. But it's the idea. To me, the automaton stage is that. Once you've passed that sort of 10,000 hours, mm -hmm. you're really confident. You've got everything together. You've got sort of this is how I practice. And, uh, and, and again, this you can carry forward for an entire career and be very, very successful in terms we'll of treatment. You'll be very pleased with what you do. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I would say the majority of people who do this for a living this is the stage you hit, and then this is just sort of where you're at. A lot of the best teachers are in this stage mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you, you just these are the folks, like you said, they've just got it together. They just come in and they do their thing, and patients get better, and nobody really knows what happened <laughs> there. Sometimes the doctor themselves don't even know quite what happened there. But, but it worked. But it works, and it's, it's, a, happy. it's a cohesive system. The ones who are um, of the mind to share will oftentimes, as I said, write down their system. I've developed this system of treatment and this is how I treat. My book. And here's my book and, and other people will benefit from that. Read that and go, oh, that's a really great way of putting things together. That's and fantastic. Start quoting you and then. Yeah, <laughs> and get quoted in things and invited to give lectures about your ways, your system of practice. And so it's, it's a great, great time. And, and you, place you've be. got some confidence too. You're never quite as confident as that technician. You know, they always are just a little more you know, you still know what you don't know. You remember those explorer days. <laughs> you have that in the rearview mirror. Yeah, and they're yeah. closer than they appear. <laughs> but you're, you have a sort of humble confidence, you know? Like, sure, I, know, sure. I know what I know, and I'm good at it. I and I know there's stuff I don't know, but like, here's what I've got, and I can, here's what I, can, what I can practice. Well, and it's interesting because uh, as I've uh, tracked this journey, uh, I'll have patients come into my office and I'll do something and treat them and they'll get better and they'll say, you know what, I've seen two other folks that also got me better and every one of you is different. Mm -hmm. And yet, despite these differences, you still get the same results. Yeah. So we all, you know, that, that synthesis that happens is different for everybody because it's largely dependent on 
what were the influences that you're drawing from to, to make this cohesive uh, model? What school yeah. What residency what did courses you, did you take? Yeah, who were your mentors? You know, it all of it plays in. And so it's fascinating because, as you said, everyone has this sort of unique blend of all the things that they've seen before that they merge together into this, this way of practicing. And so it's, it's wonderful to see. And that's why when I work with students, I always encourage them to spend as much time with this uh, as many different people as you can, because you never know what's going to resonate with you. You right. watch somebody do something, you say, wow, that's a really cool way of practicing. I need to learn more from that person. Or well, you'll see them and go, nope, don't want yeah, that. Or yeah, absolutely. That's not Just, my thing. You not say, my yep, that's, that's cool. I'm glad that works for you, but I will <laughs> never do that in my practice. Just doesn't jive with me and how I, how I think about things. And that's fine too, you know? That's all right. And so we cross into the final stage. <laughs> This, this is the epitome <laughs> of stages. Yeah, and again, not everyone reaches this stage, and I'm, don't, I'm not even sure that it, e it is a stage, but I, I surmise that it is a stage, having worked with people who've been doing this for a very, very long time. Right. Uh, and that final stage, I call the transcendent stage. So you're at the top of the mountain. You, you are that guru. This is the guru on the mountain. The top of the mountain. Absolutely. Everyone comes to say, oh, please, master. Mm -hmm. Please teach me. Teach me. And the, the transcendent stage, and I call it transcendent because um, I think that this person has, a person who has reached this stage has kind of transcended the, the rules of mechanics and ex explanations mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And, and the, the trend, I say transcendence in the way that these, the folks who reach this stage have a just almost, you know, godlike ability to, uh, to treat folks and just right. understand what's going on. They walk in the room and they already know what's going on mm -hmm. before they've even touched the patient. Absolutely. But I think on the other side of the coin, what gets lost in there is the ability to transfer that knowledge to somebody else. What ends up happening is that treatment becomes such a personal experience for that person. You know, I feel this and then I do this other thing. And, and so when you try to explain that to somebody who doesn't have that, uh, that sense, that experience, it's, you know, it's just lost. You just don't know, even know what to do, do with that. How do you describe it? Mm -hmm. You feel this thing and the students ha has their hands in the same place and they're going, feel what? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what you're talking about right now. I know we have one good friend that uh, he, he was describing colors. Yes, and so right, and so this, and that's that's part of that that transcendent mode. I think what it actually is is uh, it's a it's an acquired synesthesia, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what ends up happening is you have your own personal perceptions that are happening, right. and you put your hands on patients, and you're receiving that palpatory information from the patient. And your brain is starting to make connections between the things you're pulling in from a palpatory sense and other perceptions in your brain. And it's drawing these connections that only that are unique and peculiar to the person themselves. So, I, you know, when I feel this, I see blue. And then I know once it's blue, I have to do that. And then it turns to orange and then the patient feels better. That's the kind of conversation okay. you have with a transcendent person. And, and you know, if you're not seeing colors while you're treating, well, how are you going to describe? How do you how do you take that advice and put it into practice? It's impossible. You just can't. Yeah, Richard Feynman described the way he did math in his head was colored numbers. Right. And how do and he he would talk about that, and other people would go, I 
I remember uh, reading about that and going, colored numbers, what does that mean? Yeah. Oh, this number has that color, and this number has that other color, and when the colors come together, that's the answer. It makes a new color, right. and that's the number. <laughs> And so, so how, do you exp how do you teach that to somebody else? You just can't, right? You just hope to develop that skill and, over and, time. And just so over just thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions, your brain has just sort of mapped out this road for you. And so we're, you can't even explain it anymore other than using these sort of internal terms. Well, I've, and, I've, and I've heard people describe this in all different ways. So as you said, I feel color, I see colors when I treat, and then I do a thing and the colors change, and then I know I'm doing the right thing. I've heard other people uh, describe it as more of like an internal feel. Mm -hmm. When I touch and I do it right, I feel pressure in my chest, and then I know I'm doing the right thing, and then I feel that tension release in myself, and then I know that the patient is better. Or It's almost like their interoception is connecting with the other patient mm -hmm. or with the other person's it's, Yeah, and so you reach this sort of strange place where you can no longer really relate to people. Is that like an osteopathic nirvana? Yeah. It's we're, like we're, we're going deep here on the, the Zen. You've reached side. that moment where it's like it's just colors now. I don't treat anymore. It's all colors. You know? <laughs> and so the, the next logical question is, and we get this from students all the time, how do I get there from here? Mm -hmm. And I, I think the probably the most important message that I teach students, and, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here, is just getting your hands on patience, mm -hmm. taking time, treat people, yep. learn the new skills, go to classes, mm -hmm. read as much as you can, and really uh, envelop yourself in the osteopathic world. Yeah, there's no magic, there's no shortcut. It's There's no magic to get to the magic. It's just repeti repetitions over time. Yeah. As many and as many different people you can get your hands on, it's excellent. The one thing I would add to what you've said, every, every piece of advice that you just mentioned is spot on and exactly right. The one thing I would I would tack on to that is is the idea of getting a mentor, and, and ideally many mentors. Yes. Right? And having people help you and guide you through the process. When we think about our four stages, you know, of, of, of folks, mm. I think the ideal person to be your mentor is the person on the immediate next step, next stage yeah, from yeah, where you're sense. at, you know? Makes sense. If you're a complete novice, the person to talk to you is the technician. They know the rules back and forward. They know how to apply them. They know when to apply them. Who better to teach a novice of how to do this stuff than a person who's sitting in that stage, right? So go on and seek out someone who is at the stage where you want to be yeah. and talk to them about how they got there. If you're a transcendent person and you're trying to teach a novice, there's not a whole it, lot. It's not going to happen. Not, not a lot happen. of help in that stage. If you're a technician, who better to help you than an explorer who is just where you were to help knock you off that pedestal to say, you know, your skills, they're good, but they're not. They're not where they could. They could be better. You know, who better to tell you that than the explorer? If you're the explorer and you're just taking course after course after course and different systems and models, who better than an automaton to tell you and help you guide you towards, you need to start synthesizing this together. Let's put this together into a, into more, a, into a more cohesive package. Okay. You know? And if you're an automaton, you're already really, really good. You know, that's where you're at the level where you can talk to somebody in that transcendent stage and maybe get something out of that conversation. If you perceive, if you're somebody who you're like, I think I'm starting to see colors when I treat people. I don't know what that means, but I swear, I swear, I think I see something in my head. And you can find a mentor who also sees colors when they treat. 
they can give you insight that nobody else in the world no, can no give one you. Else would be able to. You know, and you can have. I've seen it personally at convocation. People having conversations who are both at that level, who are saying, "Oh, I love when I treat this thing and that blue color that happens when you get that. You know, that that's great when you feel that." That's a conversation that I just, at this stage in my career, I would consider myself someone in that automaton stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, I. I just do not, I have no access to that conversation not yet. Not whatsoever. Seeing colors yet. Not seeing colors, not at all. Uh, but, you know, I've done it enough where I feel like I've got a cohesive sort of way, approach. You have um, the Dr. Saj way. I have the, the, the Dr. Saj way, which is uh, maybe, might be good, might be bad, but it for works. me at least it works. It works. And it's great. Well, Dr. Sass, thanks so much for coming in and enlightening us on the path of osteopathic mm -hmm. physicians and that they take. What a great episode today. I hope uh, everyone listening gets an, a better idea of what their physician went through to become the osteopathic physician they are today. So thanks again for showing May your days be transcendent. That's right. Let's all go for colors. <laughs> and uh, thanks again for listening to Roland Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Our next episode, come and join us and hear what it's going to take to convince more physicians to be osteopathic physicians and think osteopathically. And uh, thanks again. We're always here to help you find the problem, fix the problem, and then leave it alone. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N, Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.